Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorges. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This this podcast is too clean, too technical. You, we... We need to be dirty like the streets. We have to get into it. Oh, you're right. Right. You're, you're, you're absolutely yes. right. Yes. <laughs> Today is the 10th and final episode in our Get Me Another, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage series. And boy, has it been an amazing ride. I don't think any other genre we've tackled so far has quite felt like it exists in its own world the way that Giallo does. It just, it feels like we've entered this world, we've been here for 10 weeks, we've lost our minds along the way, I think maybe we've found them again on the other side, and here we are. It is amazing. I I think that some of this has to do with the singularity of, of Italy. Yes. Because the only one that I think feels as um, laser focused on a certain type of uh, story and a certain location mm. would be our Boys in the Hood series. Yes. Although that one didn't make me lose my mind. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Because it was it, it it just the otherworldly quality of of sort of the giallo you know aesthetic is just and and I mean you know it 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 culminates with the second movie we'll talk about today where you know it just it really feels otherworld yeah especially when you're just uh, drunk on J and B like <laughs> blind stinking drunk on J and B scotch J and B I I you know or or the Fredette Bronca if that's the way you want to go you yeah, can I do know. It either way you know yeah look they've got both kinds of alcohol yes <laughs> <laughs> we're still open to sponsorship from any any alcohol company who wants to or anybody in fact wants to come in. we'll we'll plug you we'll plug your stuff we're fine with it it's all good. <laughs> the giallo boom that kicked off with 1970s The Bird with the Crystal Plumage had slowed down considerably by the mid-70s, although giallo continued to be made in the years and decades that followed, right up to the present day. But there would never again be such a concentration of these films as in the early 1970s. I ran the numbers, Rob, and of the 20 films we have looked at in this series, a full 10 of them came out in 1971. Wow. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> just just every week at Italian cinemas, it must have been giallo after giallo. Yeah, and, and we've had nothing like that. I mean, heck, no. even, it took them a couple years to start ripping off Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I mean, Italians got there first with, you know, with, with Star Crash and the Humanoid. I mean, that was, well, that and, you know, Glenn Larson with Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> TV moves faster, or it used to. <laughs> now, now it does not. That is true. Uh, today we'll be looking at two films from directors whose work we've discussed previously and who are certainly among the most influential Giallo directors, Sergio Martino and Dario Argento. And the two films we'll be discussing can be viewed as culminations of the genre so far, and both are harbingers of cinematic trends to come. But before we get to that, I want to mention what's next for Get Me Another. We are very excited that in a couple of weeks, we will be releasing our very first Christmas episode. That's right. Gather the family around, settle in with a nice cup of hot chocolate or a glass of J&B or even a Bacardi with milk and lots of crushed ice for the Get Me Another Silent Night Deadly Night 
Christmas special. Longtime listeners may recall that we covered the original Silent Night, Deadly Night last year in episode eight of our Get Me Another Halloween series. And this holiday season, we are going to be going back and exploring the Christmas confections that are Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 and Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. Oh, I'm, I'm very excited, very excited for this holiday season. Me too. And, and and can we just, can we get this started on the internet? We need a petition to just officially rename Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, colon, Garbage Day. I just think that that is what we need. <laughs> I, abs- I absolutely I just, think, absolutely think that's the case. If it can be Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it can be colon, Garbage Day. Like, even even if they don't, you know, change the prints or anything like that, it just could be on all, all the advertising and the, and the Blu-ray box, you know, Garbage Day. You're like, Die Harder. Like, it doesn't actually say Die yes. Hard 2, Die Harder at the beginning of it, but everybody knows it's Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and then we're also hard at work on our first series of 2024, which we'll be announcing at the end of this episode. But before all that, we still have two more films to talk about for Get Me Another Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And Chris, Chris, before you get into this, um, and I just uh, for our listeners, I have... Uh, refilled the eyewash station here at Get Me Another Studios. Oh, yes. I highly recommend everyone get out your eye drops uh, and maybe some eardrops uh, because your ears are about to get so dirty. (laughs) So, so dirty. Our first film today from 1973 is Sergio Martino's Torso. Enter the bizarre world of the psychosexual mind. From Carlo Ponte, who brought you Dr. Zhivago, now... Torso. 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 It saturates the screen with terror. Torso. Rated R. Produced by famed Italian producer Carlo Ponti, directed by Sergio Martino, and written by Martino and frequent collaborator Ernesto Gestaldi, Torso was released in Italy under the title quote, the bodies bear traces of carnal violence, or in some markets, simply carnal violence. Now, this is interesting because the script was originally developed under the titles Four Girls Alone and Red Like Love, Black Like Terror, after the red and black scarf worn by the killer and at least a few other people in the movie. But apparently, the distributor didn't like those titles. And the next title that Martino wanted was The Bodies Bear No Trace of Carnal Violence, which was intended to reference the killer's sexual impotence. But the distributor took out the word no and just left the exact opposite meaning. Wow. But (laughs) I will say, when you, while Martino's title is technically correct, when you watch those kill sequences, it kind of feels like they bear traces of carnal violence. It does. It it, it does. It, it absolutely does. The film stars Susie Kendall, who played Sam Domas' girlfriend in The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, as well as Tina Amont, Luke Miranda, and John Robertson. And if there is a fine line between Giallo and a slasher film, this film is right up against that line and maybe even putting a few toes over the line into the slasher film's side. 
I think it's it's definitely over the line, and it's rubbing up against that line in a very lewd oh, yeah. and lascivious manner, Chris. Suggestive. More than suggestive. While some mid-70s just saxophone is playing. Uh, <laughs> A sound I've not heard much in other Gialli. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, this was it was released under the title Torso in drive-ins and grindhouse theaters in the United States and was often part of a double feature with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which all makes sense. Yeah, and, and this may be one of the few films that can make Texas Chainsaw look tame. Yeah. <laughs> like, not, not in gore, but in tone. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I'll, here's here's what I'll say about it at the beginning. I think that the first two thirds of this movie are kind of a sleazy slog, yeah. to be perfectly honest. But the last third is one of the greatest suspense films of all time. It's like... It's like it inverted when a stranger calls. Like that movie, you have that first 20 minutes, which are amazing. And then the rest of it's sort of just a procedural, you know, shoe leather thing. Here, you just have, you have to get through that first hour, but the last 30 minutes are amazing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, and I get Martino's working in the economic environment he is, but also, I, you know, I, I think clearly some of this stuff is. I don't know if it's of interest to him or if he just got pigeonholed as this kind of movie was was his wheelhouse. But what I do find, I'm going to ask a, just a, a hypothetical question, I think with no real answer. Oh, I'll make up an answer. Yeah. Do you think a movie like this, and particularly this first two thirds that really is just like a, uh, you know, a, a, a mystery softcore porn? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Do you think something like this would get made today when people just have access to porn porn at the tips of their fingers if they want it? You know, I don't think so. I think it's 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 one of the reasons why and this is going to sound this is one of the reasons why the 70s was such a golden age of softcore. You know, it's because you couldn't just go online, let alone to your local video. I mean, just like you couldn't go to your local video store, let alone online to find material that could be titillating. This was this was the golden age of soft and hardcore porn, to be perfectly honest, before the video age came and changed everything. And obviously the streaming age changed everything even more so. Yeah. And and I don't think you could have had this kind of movie in theaters before because society wasn't ready. You, right. Pre-sexual revolution, all that, which is, I find very interesting because a lot of, or at least a few of these Italian directors were older men who seemed to hate the hippies yep. or certainly not really think fondly of them. And yet without the hippies and the sexual revolution, a lot of these films would not be able to exist. Absolutely. It's the thing that makes 70s cinema, both at the United, the other thing in the United States and abroad, so interesting is you have this period between the end of the Hayes Code in the late 60s, you know, standards of what you can depict are are changing. And and yet the the distribution methods haven't fully changed. You haven't had the home video revolution in the early, you know, started in the late 70s, but it really doesn't, you know, most people didn't have VCRs in their home till the early 80s. So a lot of the regional distribution Grindhouses and drive-ins were still in existence, whereas a decade later, into the '80s, they would be gone. So the whole the whole ecosystem for movies like this would fundamentally change. So you have this kind of perfect storm condition in the '90 from the late '60s to the early '80s, but centering around the '70s, where there is more 
it's permissible to show certain things that it wasn't before, but you have the distribution for for certain more you know, for certain other kinds of movies that most that that later would just be kind of consigned to home video. Yeah, because and because the, the entire distribution chain starts to get more and more consolidated, both at the theatrical end for the theaters themselves, and then also with the distributors and the studio. You know, yes, but right now it's it is a wonderful chaotic uh, stew that gives us, I would say, a, a, a work of art that I would compare to Perugino's Renaissance <laughs> artwork. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps of St. Sebastian. Maybe of St. Sebastian, indeed. Um, well, we'll start very similarly to the last Martino film we discussed, Your Vice is a Locked Room and I Have Only I Have the Key. The opening credits unfold over blurred shots of people having sex, sometimes unblurred. Literally, the first clear shot is of uh, is of boobies. That's the first, the first clear shot we get is of boobies. Purely coincidental, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. You know, it's yes. just, it just so happens. And... You know, that's when it, it, the focus came in, you know, and 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 here there's at least three people. Although I wasn't sure if it was more. Um, someone's clearly taking photographs. There's a creepy doll in the mix. Oh, I want to mention the music was composed by Guido and Mauricio DeAngelis, the brothers who did the music for "You're the Hunter from the Future." Woohoo! Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! And uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, use of the saxophone throughout Torso. Apparently, Martino thought the score was, quote, too French. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know uh, what that means either. Um, I'm provincially American, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But that was was the quote that I saw. I was like, it's too French. Uh, We then cut to a lecture hall at a university in Perugia, where the film is set. And I have to say, this film has got some of those beautiful architecture and locations, like the buildings inside and out are just like, they are what I think of when I think of Renaissance Italy, this spectacular and, and an amazing contrast for what's to come. I, the production value overall in this film, um, especially given its budget level, you know, this is not in, you know, a Hollywood epic or anything, but holy smokes, this thing is just beautiful. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it is due to all of those locations. Yeah. The location scouts, managers, uh, they everyone gets, uh, I hope they got some bonus pay on this because- uh, I hope I they mean, did that, too. That's half the movie. That's yeah, half the movie for me. It's, is how beautiful it, it, it really is. is. I mean, those shots where they have the students coming out of the lecture hall and going into this square filled with people. And it's just, it, it's it's fantastic. Like, it's really fantastic. I want to say most of the movies we've covered in this series were made in 1971 or 1972, but Torso came out in 1973. So we're a little deeper into the decade of the 70s, and you could really kind of see it in the fashions. Like, all the guys in this movie look like they stepped out of Italian Spider-Man. Yes, yes. (laughs) Also, everybody needs to Google Italian Spider-Man and watch it on YouTube. Google Italian Spider-Man so you'll know that it is it is amazing. Well worth your time. Also, I'll say there's not a bronze sight in this film. No, no. It's interesting we say that because the later on, and we'll we'll get there when we get there, as we always do, but the hippies in this film, it feels less not that any of the hippies and any of these have been authentic, but this feels particularly like a uh, revival uh, of Jesus Christ superstar kind, or hair, a hair revival, hair, excuse hair me. Hair or Godspell, the, Where, the real hippie. Or Godspell. You know, the real hippie Jesus musical. It just feels like, oh, the moment is gone. These yeah. people have no idea what, what these costumes should be. 
Um, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, there's that scene where one of the characters goes to like a, a party where they're all hanging out and dancing and making out and smoking dope and and, uh, and they, it's just, oh, yeah, it doesn't. yeah, the party in dirt. Yeah, in the, dirt. It's the like in a barn. In dirt in an abandoned building that's crumbling, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> like, I should also mention that these actors are all supposed to be college kids and they must have come from the same school as the kids from A Bay of Blood because none of them are remotely close to college age. Nope, not at all. <laughs> and probably given the subject matter for the best. <laughs> well, that is that is probably true. Uh, so you have this group of, of friends, there's a couple of girls, um, and and a few guys and and uh, one of the guys in the group, Stefano, seems pretty hung up on a particular girl named uh, Danny Daniela. Uh, and Stefano wears this red and black scarf that might be a clue, or it might be a red herring, or maybe both. Here's the real thing about this movie: every guy in this movie is a creep. Yes. All of them. They all deserve to go to jail. All of them. Yeah. I mean, the way they look at any woman they come across with this leering, sinister stare, it would make any rational woman run for the fucking hills. Uh, I mean, the students, the teachers, the random hot doctor, the guy selling scarves in the square, every guy is creepy. Yeah, it's it's as if you were a woman and you just say, oh, where's the shop or what time is it? And the response is to just creepily stare at you <laughs> intensely yes, yes. for way too long. <laughs> Like it's so it's so creepy. A lot of red and black herrings in this movie. Yes. Oh god. Well, it's impossible to figure out who the killer is because every guy is a serious red flag. You know, I mean honestly, it reminded me, I'll be honest, it reminded me of 2023's biggest hit, Barbie. Basically, <laughs> guys are terrible. And it's the truth. It is the truth. The first murder takes place in what an American film would be called a lover's lane. It's a, you know, but, but here it's just two people having sex in a Fiat under a bridge, which I guess is the Italian, Italian version of that. And we have a peeper. He appears at the window and the guy, guy throws his pants on. He's going to go investigate newsflash. He's not coming back. And the girl gets out. She looks around and she's attacked and strangled by a man in a mask with a red and black scarf. And then he stabs her after he does the strangling. And I'll, again, I'll quote 10 to midnight, because uh, it always applies, the knife has got to be his penis. Yeah. And uh, th this sequence will, uh, to get into a little bit of the slasher stuff, this one has quite a bit of killer POV. Uh, and, and you get it throughout, but in this sequence, you get a lot of the shots of the killer looking at the car that you think you would get right. in a slasher movie. And then I do love the tension, the way that it's set up, where the, the the guy goes to investigate the noise, of course. He's gone for too long. And when she comes out, she's slowly going toward the darkness. And they ratchet up the tension. You think that she's walking to the danger. And then suddenly, this is at night, the car headlights behind her get turned off. Yeah. And then it's and then it just goes into overdrive from there. It's really fantastic. It's a classic slasher movie setup. Like this is yeah. this is classic slasher movie right here. And I, I do want to go backward for one second because there's a bit of meta, I think, at the beginning of this movie that I want to discuss just briefly. Oh, of course. Because it does open with the art professor. Oh, that's right. Yes. Professor Franz is the art professor. Yes. Talking about 
Perugino. Yeah, there's not much story there, but they're discussing artworks and, you know, there's the Renaissance and you get you get two things, though, I think, where the Renaissance artwork of naked bodies. Yes. That is, you know, revered and in a museum. And then you have the students or the art students arguing about it afterwards about what does it mean? You know, what does this art mean or whatever? That's true. And it. Really, to me, I, I I do wonder. Like Martino is comparing a, a revered naked body art, and then to his film, which is not as revered. And the kids are kind of talking about this. Professor, excuse me, but what you were saying about Perugino, don't you think your analysis was a bit too severe? Why then? <laughs> In the Saint Sebastian, the Louvre, you completely ignore the intensely spiritual aspect of the figure. Why it's practically overflowing with holiness. Is that how it strikes you? Yes. You believe Perugino was capable of that? Vasari says he was a person with so little genuine religion, he could never make anyone believe in the immortality of the soul. He presents him as an atheist, painting saints and Madonna. I'll buy that, Professor. Although I find it strange that he never painted any blood on the bodies of his martyrs. He was a painter, not a butcher. <laughs> he was a common-sense bourgeois, and he liked to show sentimentality without all the melodrama. You're going a bit too far. This is almost like meta-critic-proofing your, your, your film <laughs> uh, in a weird way. It's not as obvious as, like, you know, something American in the 90s, but... I, I do think it goes on for too long to be a coincidence. Sure. And it's not quite as obvious as even talking about, you know, jazz and how, uh, you know, how, how, Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. you see, yeah. You, you, um, I gotta say the, the mask that this killer wears is one of the most frightening we've seen. Cause it's this, it's, it's like a stocking mask with the eyes and mouth cut out and and gone like it's interesting like how gone is the smooth facelessness of the mask from blood and black lace or even like the surrealness of that mask from four flies on gray velvet and here we're just to this earthy realistic looks like something somebody made at home kind of thing and it's uh it creeped me the fuck out i'll be honest yeah it, it's it's interesting in that the color is different but it reminds i would have to think i think is it time crimes i think oh yeah yeah uh, has a very similar mask but i believe that one's red the masks prior were either you're just putting fabric over or hey i've got this creepy plastic baby mask you know whatever <laughs> right. stuff, stuff like that but this is definitely it's like a hat that's been repurposed yeah by like angrily ripping some eye holes into it but like just tear they're not like nicely made this no. is clearly was gashed through and a mouth hole and the mouth hole and it really does pro- like the mask itself it just looks like it was made in anger yeah and it's that's terrifying yeah, yeah. absolutely Absolutely. Uh, one of the students after this murder, one of the students, Carol, is very upset about the death of her friend the night before. And she appears to be having an affair with uh, Danny's creepy uncle, Nino, who is there to be, you know, a possible suspect. Uh, we also have Jane, played by Susie Kendall, and Professor Franz are kind of taking a liking to one another. And it's so funny that, like, this this possible teacher-student relationship is presented as the least problematic relationship in the film, which is still messed up because teacher-student romantic relationships inherently have an off-balance power dynamic. But at least he's not actively stalking her, I suppose. Yeah, 
it, this whole sequence here where we're getting uh, Jane and Professor Franz talking and then and then when she leaves, um, this is all kind of a- outside. So this is uh, on location. Yeah, it's in the square. Yeah. The camera movement in that square is great yeah. because at the end when she walks away, we kind of dolly, camera dollies over and there's like this bridge and there's steps on either side. And let's say that the, the the left frame is where she was. As she's walking away, camera dollies right across the bridge down to the other end where the, the right staircase gets revealed. And then she's revealed kind of walking under. And then down in the background is where old creepy Uncle Nina <laughs> is uh, with, uh, oh. oh my gosh, Carol, right? Carol. Yeah. And they're Carol. arguing about ending things and all yeah. of that. But it's such a it's such a great little you know, visual flourish. It is. It really is. Unable to stalk Danny into liking him, Stefano decides to go see a prostitute, uh, but he is unable to get an erection uh, despite the help of the sex worker. Now, uh, she tells him, I have some porn films, Swedish stuff, which immediately made me think of the misdelivered mail from Four Flies on Grey Velvet. But what I thought was interesting, because I watched a couple of scenes of this in both English and Italian. In Italian, the translated line is, I have some porn films, Swedish stuff. In English, it's, I have some nice movies. Swedish movies. So they even was a little bit of uh, like a little bit of, you know, kind of softening it for the English dumb. Yeah. America, the prude. (laughs) Yes. Carol, for her part, definitely has some issues going on. And she goes off with two dudes on motorbikes to some kind. This is where we get to the barn, the the hippie barn with all the kids and they're smoking pot and they're having sex. There's a lot of shots of a girl dancing in the middle with her shirt open. Yeah. You know, it's there's the titillation aspect for sure. And it's front and center in this scene. Uh, There's two guys, the two guys from the motorbikes. They're trying to get Carol. Yeah. Like they're trying to literally get into Carol's pants. Uh, and and credit to Carol, uh, when she says no, she means it. So she, you know, she takes off. Uh, that said, uh, Carol, don't go out into the swamp because nothing good happens in the swamp. Yeah, um, she is no Adrian Barbeau. She is not going to meet a swamp thing. <laughs> She's going to meet an untimely fate. Well, I mean, of course, because all men are terrible. The guys follow her. They try to chase her on their motorbikes, but they can't find her. Instead, it's the killer who finds Carol. And we have a chase scene here through the swamp that I swear to God feels right out of Last House on the left. Like it's it's literally dirty because it's just it's all swampiness and and the killer feels like it seems like this hulking figure, like moving slowly and purposely towards his victim. It almost feels like prefiguring Jason Voorhees coming out of the coming out of the Crystal Lake. Yeah, and it's um, probably similar. It, it's also similar to um, like a, a hulking Leatherface, yeah. chasing people around. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I mean, this movie would have been a great double with uh, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the killer he strangles her with a red scarf. He pushes her face down into the dirty swamp water. Uh, it's interesting because both of these movies involve a drowning, yeah, uh, which are quite different. Um, but both of them sort of there's there's a real journey from the drowning in the bathtub of blood and black lace to the killing of in the swamp in torso almost a decade later. And they just show like you went from something that was very, very kind of like 
classically built to something that feels much more organic and frankly dirty. Yeah, I mean, I you have to think the further you get from Diabolique, yeah. the more down and dirty the bathtub deaths are getting. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, following Carol's murder, the police come to the school asking for the students' help in finding the killer. Uh, the one piece of evidence they have is they've matched the fragments of the scarf used to kill Carol to a certain red and black colored scarf. And the officer, the officer ends his address to the students. And uh, this was uh, this was amazing because I believe you all want this killer to be brought to justice at once. And I hope, in a case like this, at least, you will consider the police for what they are: your vigilant defense. After that, you can protest and riot when we're a bit reluctant to let you dismantle the state. Uh, dude, that's not the way to get on these kids' good side. Just, you know, if you've seen something, say something. That's enough. You don't need to, you know, give them the finger, basically, uh, to boot. Well, and that's not even the worst thing that they do because they are, uh, in talking to the entire student body, they are literally showing them the crime scene photos and other disgusting oh, yeah. evidence. And um, some of those students look pretty shell-shocked, as you would imagine. Yeah. Couldn't they have just – couldn't they have projected a fingerprint? That would have been more easy on these kids. <laughs> just a fingerprint. <laughs> you know what? They got to they gotta learn what kind of world they found themselves in. I guess this town doesn't have a punch card supercomputer to run things through, so <laughs> – they have to, no, they have to no. rely on these unreliable hippie students. Danny, actually, of, of all the students, Danny actually gets a call from the killer telling her to forget who she saw wearing the red scarf. This red scarf becomes like the sort of the key to it all. Uh, and Danny's uncle Nino helpfully suggests that her and her friends go off to this remote country villa to get away from things. That's a great, great suggestion, Uncle Nino. Thanks for that. Yeah, um... Clearly, none of them have seen Gialli. No, no. Although, to their credit, at least this time, uh, they don't go. Uh, she doesn't go alone. No, no. She tries to do the smart thing and go with a bunch of girlfriends. Safety in numbers, right? It, that's probably better. Well, theoretically, theoretically, safety oh, in numbers. Oh, does something bad happen? Oh, well, you know, uh, the scarf peddlers, the, the, there's the guy who peddles scarves in the in the town square. He knows who the killer is. I mean, he's in the scarf business after all. And he tries to blackmail the killer. Like, he goes so far as to blackmail the killer, but literally takes a car to the face for his efforts. Like, bam. And uh, it's not the last time someone's going to take a car to the face in these two movies. That that scarf peddler among and peddled many other things, right? <laughs> yes. My favorite, my favorite thing uh, is on the street behind his stall. Behind him, if you look, it's at least in one scene. It's it's. I don't know if it's there the first time we see him because I didn't notice it until this late this later instance before he goes off to try and blackmail and and that ends poorly for him. There's this advertising poster behind him for you know presumably for stuff that he's selling it's glove story where it it's, has all these black and white all these black and white photos of like a glove love story and this would be a few years after oh my love god story. i don't know i i anyway I just, uh, it was a little detail that I love. Glove means never having to say your hands are chilly. Yes, indeed. 
Or, and also, you know, I, I just think a little cheeky to be advertising gloves in a Giallo film as well. Oh, it's perfect. Yes. Oh, it's perfect. It is absolutely, I love it. Before they leave for the, uh, I'll just say, before they leave for the murder villa, Danny, uh, Danny thinks he remembers Stefano wearing a black and red scarf, which leads Jane to go to his apartment looking for him. And he's gone, but he's left behind some real stalkery kind of letters, as well as a parrot and a doll. So that is immediately suspicious. Creepy doll. Uh, and Danny and her two friends, uh, who are a lesbian couple, head up to the villa by train, but Jane is going to join them by car later. And uh, and in the, the train car is the hot but intense doctor who shares the train car up for them. We've just seen him around, and he hasn't had much interaction, but he's very hot and very intense. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe he's the killer. Uh, it looks like the role that Ivan Rasimov would have played, but for some reason did not. Once the three girls get to the small town near the villa, basically the whole town comes out to ogle them like they were aliens landed in a town square. Like, they, they literally everybody in this town is out there staring at them. The men are staring at them like they are very sexy aliens, like Diana from V. It's just like, and the faces that these men are making are literally just like grotesque. The even weirder thing is that this is going to come back and play a critical role in this story. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. You think it's just this <laughs> weird thing of, you know, objectifying the women and it is, but also. Oh, it is. It's Chekhov's objectifying of the women. <laughs> So that Jane makes it up to the villa and uh, she tells Danny that Stefano had nothing to do with the murders. And Danny realizes, and this is a big revelation, that Stefano's scarf had a red design on a black background, not a black design on a red background. And we see like the scarf shift in the flash of Danny's memory. But I got to be honest, Rob, all they looked, they looked all black and red to me. I'm like, I couldn't tell which was black and red and which was red and black. Like they have different patterns, but it's just all red and black. That's all I could see. Yeah, I uh, really did not in the, it's so fast. It, it is hard to discern between the two. And I guess that's part of the point um, is that it, it is something that is, you know, playing with memory and what we do remember or not and how difficult some of those details are. Um, it's not playing with it super hardcore, certainly not like Bird with the Crystal Plumage or our next film. Uh, but, um, you know, it's in that, it's in that wheelhouse. Yes, absolutely. It is definitely in that wheelhouse. And, and, and the other thing I thought was interesting is that when, when, when we finally get all four of the girls together, like Jane, like the other girls might be able to pass for college age, but Jane looks like she's their aunt, like their hot aunt, but she's their aunt. And Susie Kendall was like about 35 when this movie was made. Now, I should point out, she's really good. And we'll get to the part. Her performance is that, great. That there's a yeah. lot of this movie she carries. But like, I don't know, maybe you could have made her a graduate student or something. Well, I, I think, and this will get into something when you, uh, at the end of this episode, when you ask me what we have learned, this is going to feed into this. <laughs> I actually think when she was talking to Professor Franz earlier, she was discussing, I think she had, she was like an artist. I think she had gone, diff, done different oh, okay. schooling. So I think she is not 
undergraduate age. She's not a peer. She's supposed to be a little older, maybe. So I think the implication is that she probably is pretty close to the professor's age, actually. Um, and she has a little more life experience. Because then they talk about um, – he even, I think, connects it when he's talking to her about the artwork and how she, when she's discussing it that she's not a Philistine or whatever like the, the other uh, yes. college girls because she's older, <laughs> has more experience, etc. So Well, that, that all makes perfect sense. Yeah. However, uh, I, I want to say that that, that – came out in like an offhanded line of dialogue that I happened to be paying attention to. So listener, dear listener, pay attention to what I just said, because this will be coming back around again at the what we learned <laughs> portion of the evening. <laughs> I'm very excited. Uh, down in the village, the guys in the village are still talking about the women they saw. Like they've never seen, honestly, like they've never seen women before. They are still going on about it. Honestly, I believe it because the way these guys behave, it, I think the <laughs> women avoid them because they yeah, are they're honestly, the worst. Yes. Don't go to this village. It's not it's not good. No. Uh one one guy sneaks up to the villa to do some peeping and boy does he get an eyeful with the uh the lesbian couple. One of them is played by Carla Braid who played the sex wrestler in The Case of the Bloody Iris and uh they are those two ladies are getting intimate with a capital I. If you were going to have a morality play and you said, here I have a committed couple who is making sweet love to each other. That's true. And outside I have a peeper who is non-consensually uh, horndogging all over the place. Also true. Who's going to survive? Who is going to not be brutally murdered? Well- the peeper gets it. I'll say that much. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, like th th there's, there's the, tw <laughs> <laughs> theoretically the peeper would get it, but, uh, well, I, I mean, it's funny cause, uh, it's in regards to the erotic content of this film, I, I actually watched an interview with Sergio Martino uh -huh. where he said about the erotic content. And I quote, like putting Parmesan on the spaghetti. The ingredient had to be there in the dish of the day. And uh, I, you cannot say it more eloquently than that. And, and look, I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. That's he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah. Oh, the next day, the girls are hanging out on the lawn naked when Jane twists her ankle coming down the stairs. Uh, the hot, creepy doctor, the hot but possibly creepy doctor comes to help and he gives her some pain medication to help her sleep, which she takes with alcohol, which is definitely not advisable. Uh, dear listeners, don't take prescription drugs with alcohol. That's a mistake uh, that she makes and she it knocks her the hell out. And then the other girls, they're hanging out downstairs when the doorbell rings and Stefano is standing there. And then he literally falls into the house dead. It's the exact same thing that happened in Slumber Party Massacre yeah. with the pizza guy. Yep. Like, oh, wow. Like, that's where it, like, this is amazing. Uh, so the next morning, Jane wakens from her pain medication and Duke's sleep and she comes downstairs to find all of her friends murdered. And it is, it is, 
it is here at basically the one hour mark that this film, which I honestly thought was a bit of a drag to this point, transforms into one of the most riveting suspense films I have ever seen. The scene that she comes downstairs finds everyone dead. It is perhaps the most pure horror scene we have seen in a giallo to this point. Uh, it's it's incredible. Absolutely. And I will, um, I'll cop to being a little dumb or impatient in this sequence because when Stefano, when that door opens, Stefano's there, like the scarf falls away and then he falls down dead. Yeah. You see that the black gloved killer, you, you just, you kind of just see the black glove was holding the body up and kind yeah. of let him go pushed a little yes. bit. Yes. And then you cut away and you're getting, um, what, Jane waking up. And I thought, oh, so they have the body drop and they're just not going to address this at all because the killer was right there. I just thought it was, I, and, you know, bad on me. I, I just thought the filmmaking was less than stellar <laughs> at that section. But no, no, very, very soon. And and when Jane's coming down, you get the beautiful shots through the banisters on the uh, the stairs. You get a lot of the nice camera work and like up from on high, etc. A lot of these odd angles kind of showing her disorientation as she's coming down. Right. And then tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. Oh, it's, it is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a horror show. I mean, it is, uh, my goodness. Uh, Jane finds herself trapped in the house, which has these old fashioned locks. My aunt and uncle's house had these uh, when I was a kid where you have to have a key to lock it from either side. So you can lock it with a key from either side, but you can't, it's not like, you know, so basically you would lock someone in as much as you could lock someone out. And the killer doesn't know that she's there because she came up separately. He thought there were only three girls. So they have this whole sequence and it's amazing where Jane has to try and keep her presence hidden while the killer moves about the house, you know, basically cutting up the bodies to go dispose of them. And it is amazing. It is just, it is, it is an incredible sequence that just makes the movie. Like, uh, again, I thought it was okay to that point, but that last 30 minutes is incredible. This tension is, is insane. Oh. Like you, you're like the, my body was tensing up. Oh my God. It, it, and, and just the, when she moves from place to place, when he, when the killer has, has left to go, you know, drag a part out or whatever. And, and we did see the grave being dug before. So we know that he's getting rid of body parts probably bit by bit. Also, when we're down here, when you're down in this area, you do see a J and B scotch bottle at one point. Uh, so you <laughs> yes, know you that do. it's chilling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I mean, and, and there's like the killer kind of comes and goes, but always locks the house. The phone lines have been cut. Jane tries to like signal people in the village with a mirror, but can't. It's unsuccessful. And and I want, I just want to say something because I mentioned earlier that Susie Kendall uh, seemed a little too old to play a college student. Now if she's uh, she's maybe she's more a graduate student. And 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 while I I think that's true, she gives an absolutely amazing performance. The whole last half hour of this movie rests on her and she is absolutely riveting 100%. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and it rests on her performance which is essentially without dialogue. Yes. She Yes. But the difference is it, it is without dialogue, but interestingly if you think about it when you watch it it still is playing off of another actor. 
That's true. That is true. But that other actor isn't necessarily giving us much because we're not seeing facial expressions or whatever. But I think hacking up bodies is fairly expressive uh, when it comes to having things to play off of. Absolutely. And Jane, Jane does smart stuff here. Like she's no dummy. Like the first thing she does is is clean up the room that she was sleeping in. Uh, like she rolls up the bedroll, she gets the garbage, she puts it in the wardrobe, so that if the killer goes into that room, which he will, he won't think another person had slept in that house the night before. And there's this incredible suspense moment where she is hiding in the wardrobe, and he is kind of moving around the room, and you're just like. She's watching him through the crack in the wardrobe and is just, it is just heart stopping. Like it's so good. Oh yeah. And, and so much so that they have her do kind of one dumb thing, which was frankly unnecessary because another dumb thing is what's actually going to give her away. And, and so I just don't know why they needed her to lose the slippers. I'll do the slippers bit now. Yeah. She's coming up the stairs. She loses the slippers and, and she's not able to go back for them. But again, she's still dealing with her injured ankle uh, to boot. So it's like going up and down the stairs is really tough for her, but it's actually while the killer is down in the village, again, he's locked the house from the outside. She can't get out. And the, and the villa is like on a cliff, so it's not like she could climb out the window. Like, it's like climb out the window and fall down a, a chasm. Um, but like, while he's down in the village, the killer overhears the stupid village guys talking about how hot the women at the villa are. And then another one got there late and he realizes there's another girl left. And, and it's, it's, I mean, it's like, oh man, all, all, it's like the, all the men are terrible. All the ter- they don't even know how terrible they're being. And I realize how insane I'm going to sound uh, right now when discussing a movie like Torso. But this this was the one thing in the movie that really bothered me. I think especially because it was amidst all of the best stuff in the movie, the best filmmaking in the movie, mm-hmm. because it really did feel kind of sitcom coincidental. And I know they say, oh, if a, if a coincidence is bad for your main character, it's okay. No, that is false. Um, it can still it can still be dumb. It can still be a bad coincidence, yeah. <laughs> even if it's bad for your main yes. character, right? Um, and this is one of those. And and it's and it's just tough because look, I know this movie's torso. It's a giallo movie. It's very stylized anyway. But this was so far out the realm of at least what I've seen as human experience and how humans behave. Sure. <laughs> Just like, dude, like I would even believe these guys have this conversation, but I'm like, it would be at the, at the like over wine at the taverna or something, or, you know, ah, like shouting yeah, it across yeah, yeah. in the loudest voices possible. <laughs> like, what I do when I want to have a conversation with someone is, Walk as far away from them as possible, so I have to shout it. Well, preferably if you guys are framed by like a statue or a fountain in in between the two oh, of yeah, you, you yeah. Can, that's that's the way to do it. You know, <laughs> uh, I think we should put in our spoiler line here. And and honestly, if you haven't seen this movie, I I do recommend skipping the next chapter because this last sequence is so. Good. Like I said, I thought the first hour was just okay, but the last 30 minutes are amazing. We have this amazing sequence where Jane, having been locked in the bedroom uh, for uh, once again by the killer, tries to push the key 
out of the lock on the other side of the door and have it fall on a piece of newspaper so she can slide it under the door. And, you know, again, these are old style locks where you have to use a key and the key is left in the, the lock. And she she pushes the key out and it falls just off of the newspaper. But she can't see that because that's on the other side of the door. And so she starts to pull the newspaper back you know, to pull the key that she hopes is on the newspaper, pull it under the door, and a black-gloved hand picks up the key and puts it on the newspaper. And she continues to pull it. And she's got the key. She picks up the key. She opens the door, and she comes face to face with the killer. It's incredible. And the killer is Professor Franz. Uh, and this is where we get a little bit of psychological bullshit stuff. We learn that when he was a boy, Franz's brother fell to death trying to get a girl's doll back from the edge of a cliff. And that turned into a psychopathic misogynist. And impotence. And impotence. And impotence. I guess yeah. he had a threesome with Flo and Carol uh, trying to, you know, I guess trying to, you know, get things going down there. And they blackmailed him. And that's why he killed them. And then he killed the other girls because he thought they could identify him. And he basically saw all these women as, in his words, filthy, stupid dolls. And this is where the film kind of fails for me by putting any of the blame on the women at all. Like, like they didn't have to have the blackmail thing. You just need to make him a killer. That's all. Just he's a killer. That's the stronger choice. But they have to do this psychological rigmarole. Yeah, and and I think this sometimes the worldview of everyone is awful and we all have it coming can sometimes perhaps uh, do a disservice to your story. I agree. Spoiler alert, I myself am a bit of an optimist about people and think (laughs) that we are mostly good uh, and that sometimes that good is obscured. Again, everyone in this movie deserves to get it. And that's why I think the peeper gets it as well as the loving couple. Yes. uh, and, And a whole lot of other people as well. Yes. So in the final moments, and this was my other my other issue with the film, the final moments, the hot doctor shows up, and, and you know he had been up to the the villa before to treat Jane's leg. He goes up there, he fights Franz. There's a prolonged struggle, and Franz ends up going over the side of the cliff. Honestly, if it were up to me, I would have had Jane defeat him on her own. But I guess in Italy in 1973, with this these particular filmmakers, that was not going to happen. They needed a guy to show up and save her. And I think it would have been better if she found a way to save herself. Yeah. I mean, and this fight feels like it's from a completely different movie. Because uh, the, the tension <laughs> yes, it does. The tension goes away. And this is just like a drop kicking, like punching fight. Yeah. The, this could be the end of, or this could be the, the fight in the middle of They Live, frankly, in the alley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yes. I mean, it, it's not yes. it, it's not unenjoyable, but it does feel like it's uh, the movie takes a, a different turn here. But then it turns back to the tension because when Hot Doctor he throws him over, you know, throws him over, but you don't know it. You don't know it at the time. Yes, she's waiting kind of anxiously, and then you're cutting between her kind of being scared of who's coming and her POV of who's coming. Those initial shots, and eventually it's revealed it's Hot Doctor and she smiles, but the first couple shots, and I went back to to verify this, they they do have Professor Franz and it's his clothing. He is the one walking. Oh, do they? So for the, it, oh. for the first like one or two POV shots before it's revealed she is safe, 
they actually it's he's far enough back and it's in the dark so it's it's oh, not playing as a total cheat but it really is like her pov expecting the worst and then you see her smile oh, and cool. it cuts and hot doc is super close so yeah. all is Hot well doc, you know yeah. and then and then all's well you know your all your friends are dead but all is well i mean it, it, you know again i i I, 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 there are issues I have with the film, and I, and I, I wish she had been able to save herself. But, but that the the sequence with her in the house is so good, and it's such an amazing suspense sequence that I mean, I gotta say, check this movie out because oh, yeah. th- everything else, for all its flaws, that is one of the all time great suspense sequences put to film. And, you know, I mean, that that makes the movie. Yeah. I thought about it. I was like, you know, because, th- again, this feels like it is right on the line between a giallo and a slasher film. And and I would say that in the latter, the big difference is in the latter. If this was an American slasher film, we would have seen the three girls in the house killed one by one rather than having Jane wake up to find them all dead. They would have had that sequence where each of them gets killed. Yeah. But it, this is clearly a movie that has strong influence on the slasher genre. Uh, which was just getting underway at the time this movie came out. Our next film, and the final one for this series, is also one that has a profound influence on the horror genre, but in a very different fashion. From Dario Argento, this is Profundo Rosso, also known as Deep Red. You're getting closer and closer to the most unnatural kind of death. And you will kill again. Beyond shock, beyond horror, into total terror. What was that? Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Terror runs deep red. Everywhere you turn, death is running with you. Deep red. It'll put you into deep shock. Deep red rated R. Well, Rob, it really feels like we've come full circle here. Dario Argento's first film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, kicked off. The Golden Age of Giallo in 1970, and five years later, Deep Red feels like the culmination of that era that we have been exploring for the last 10 weeks. It's worth mentioning the Giallo boom had already started to wane when Deep Red came out in 1975. Obviously, the genre would continue on, and Argento himself would make more, but this film feels like the end of an era. And the beginning of a new one, as you've hinted at. Absolutely. Because... It's it's amazing to me that the the scenario for this is essentially bird with the crystal plumage. Yes, where you have your your hero witness a murder, be impotent to stop anything. Yes, and then know that he saw something that he can't remember. Be obsessed with trying to remember it and being obsessed with solving this murder that he truly really has no connection to otherwise absolutely and yet that's the part that feels like the capstone on the past right the part that feels like springboarding into the future is where the visual style and direction and some of the story points uh where this all goes because uh i think when you 
when you open this movie up, which you're about to, this is like a flag in the ground of this. This ain't uh, this ain't your grandpa from three years ago, Giallo. No. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many times in my life I have heard the phrase, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. There's plenty of things where I have said things that, that I meant completely innocuously, but the way I said it uh, came off a way I didn't intend. I forgave you, Chris. I told you a million times <laughs> I forgave. No, I don't <laughs> That phrase applies to Deep Red like no other phrase. As you say, it is very much the basic beats are that of Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but it's how Argento tells the story that makes Deep Red such an extraordinary film. There's this this sense of theatricality and even artificiality to this movie that sets it apart from so many of the movies we've discussed to this point, even the other Argento films. Uh, we should start with the basics, though. We should start with the, the the nuts and bolts of it. Deep Red was directed by Dario Argento and written by Argento and Bernardino Zapponi. It stars English actor David Hemmings, Dario Nicolodi, Gabrielle Lavia, Macha Merrill, and Clara Kalamad. Argento's working title for this movie, I thought this was fascinating, was The Sabertooth Tiger, keeping the animal motif of his previous Gialli and all I could think of is the scene from The Sopranos where they're pitching the movie that Christopher wants to make. Yeah. Right now it's called The Sabretooth Tiger. But I'm thinking just Deep Red. Apparently his uh, the distributor or whatever, the producers, hated Deep Red. I really? Think he said his dad and his brother hated Deep Red. They wanted to keep the animal title, which he had said he just – he that was always just a working title he slapped on. Oh boy! And I think there might have been another kind of animal themed one, another one in the interim. But he he was adamant that it be deep red because that actually deals with the film and the subject matter and the themes. Yeah, there were a few things in this movie that he, you know, in in uh, retrospect, has in interviews has said that he didn't budge on. And, you know, you never know. You always print the legend with these things. But with a filmmaker like him, I actually believe it because, I mean, this is not like a movie by committee where you go, oh, of course, a- a- all of the money people were telling you to call this Deep Red. You know, oh, everyone wanted the, <laughs> the creepy mechanical doll. Oh, you're slapping that in just because you're you're not thinking, right? The irony was that in, in its, I think it's, it's later, it was later re-released, not its initial release in the United States, but a later re-release in the United States. It was just titled The Hatchet Murders. Uh, uh. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's terrible. We open with a little touch of Christmas horror, which is the perfect you know segue to our our Christmas special two weeks from now. Uh, a little touch of Christmas horror with this nice looking home with a Christmas tree in the background, and one figure stabs another one in shadow, and the knife drops at the feet of what seems to be a child. And all the while, you have this creepy children's music playing in the background. And then But then it switches, Rob. The music switches. Boom. Goblin!
Oh, this is interesting. There was an original score by jazz pianist Giorgio Gaslini, who is still credited in the film, but Argento wasn't happy with, happy with it. After un- being unable to get Pink Floyd to do the score, he turned to Italian progressive rock band Goblin, and the results are stunning. Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's still a couple pieces by Giorgio in the movie. Yeah. And I, he also apparently went to Genesis and tried to get Genesis to do this when he really? when he went to England. Oh my God. That would have, and that and early Genesis. enough, that would have been a Peter Gabriel Genesis too. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. But Goblin. He came back and I think it was his, uh, oh God, not music supervisor, whatever capacity, had a demo tape of these kids who just gotten out of college and would he want to listen to it? And the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history because this is one of the great horror scores of all time. I mean, it is, I mean, you just, you just hear it and you feel it and it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a, as recognizable a horror theme as there, as there are, at least for horror. It's fans. like Halloween. Yeah. It's like Halloween. It's like tubular bells. Um, You know, it's <laughs> yes, like the Freddy absolutely. theme from Nightmare on Elm Street. And of course you can also say it's like Suspiria. As far as recognizability yeah. goes, yes, uh, but but you know, I mean, and we'll 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 this will come up again and again. You don't get to Suspiria without this film. Oh no, like, this film is the bridge to Suspiria. So depending on which version you watch, you either go right fr- from the opening sequence to Marcus Daly and leading his jazz group and kind of telling him that it's all it sounds good, guys, but it's a little too polished. It needs to be trashier. It needs to be trashier. Yeah, exactly. Or you go right to. The uh, psychic phenomena lecture, uh, you go right through these red curtains, very much like the red curtain shots in Four Flies on Grey Velvet, into this theater where a discussion on parapsychology is going on. I, I love the the look of this theater. It's amazing. And the shots. It's amazing. It's, it's, and it's just, there's, you, you open with, and this is a very, very bright red, everything, uh, the curtains, yes. the backdrop, the seats. walls, the seats. Yeah. Um, and you have a pretty full crowd, uh, you know, in, in the audience here for this. And it just, you know, even though it's it's different, it reminded me of uh, a couple things before and after. It reminded me of Edward Van Sloan coming out from the curtain. Oh, sure. And, and Dracula, the very beginning of Dracula. To warn the audience that what they were about to see was so terrible and terrifying. Now, this isn't direct address. It's mo- it's so it's mo- it's more modern in that sense, but it's kind of still set But it has stage. a theatrical feel. Yeah. I mean, it's literally you're opening with them on, on stage here. Yeah. And they're framed by the proscenium arch. Like it's, yeah. it is, it's a, it's, it's not that different than the, the, the window in Bird from the Crystal Plumage that gives you the scene into the art gallery inside. You're, you're framing that action with a formal frame. Yeah. And the other, I mean, there, there's many things you could talk about that it looks like it influenced, but the one thing, um, and I don't know that this is a direct influence, but it reminded me of a similar impulse in uh, Scanners, Cronenberg Scanners. Oh, sure. Where you have essentially... And I think this is one of the genius parts of putting this at the at the beginning. Uh, once you get into, you know, you flash forward to the present day in this film, because you have it's an official setup where you have people who are experts presenting authoritative information to a room full of people. Yep. This is the kind of setting that often 
gives you a feeling of safety, that will give you a feeling of the the grownups are in control in this room. And right from the get-go, that gets undermined pretty hardcore. We're, we're introduced to Helga Ullman, who claims to be a psychic who can sense thoughts and feelings, although she says she can't tell the future. I can feel death in this room. I feel present a twist in mind sending me thoughts perverted murderous thoughts go away Mrs. Ullman here you have killed and you will kill again and we get this first person shot of someone getting up in the audience and going into the bathroom. And, and, and what I love is the bathroom is filthy, first of all. Oh, it's the nastiest. But like the mirror is so dirty, so dirty, she can't see the reflection. It's like, oh, you almost could get it there. But no, the mirror was too dirty. And then the black gloves come out. They get zipped up. It's right there. It's like They get zipped up, baby. Again, in the first person, we have a figure watching as Omen leaves the empty theater and and she's saying to to uh, the the professor that she thinks she can identify the person whose thoughts she saw. And and I I loved her description of the thoughts as cruel yet childish at the same time. I thought that was particularly fascinating given some of the motifs of this movie. And and all of the macro photography that we're about to see next. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. With, uh, you know, which kind of fits with, you know, there's that ominousness, but a childishness to that. Yes. So we get these super close up uh, you know, images of children's toys, but there's something like unsettling of it, about it. Like one of the items is a doll made out of red yarn, but it's been stabbed with pins. And and again, you have these extreme close ups throughout the movie. And and what it does, it's, it's, it's disorienting. Argento puts the camera super close to an object. And so we can see this extreme detail, but at the same time we get, we often lose a sense, the larger sense of what we're looking at. It's brilliant. Yeah. It is absolute. The camera work is just brilliant beyond compare in this movie. Yeah. And, and I love that the, the visual that you were talking about there, where you, the closer you examine things, kind of the more loss you get. Yeah. And I guess that was a, a newer uh, camera. Uh, Dario referred to it as the snorkel. That was literally a, a like a, a like a tube with a lens at the end. Oh wow! And he saw it used in a commercial and and wanted it for this. And uh, and he wound up using it in a commercial himself later on. Uh, oh, that's interesting. For a car. You see it like go through, but uh, yeah, got to pay the bills. There you go. Um, and, and oh, I should mention, in, in, talking about extreme close-ups, one of the few images we get of the killer is the close-up of their eye applying this very heavy eyeliner. Yeah. Could be a red herring, could could be telling, but it, it's there. I want to mention it. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's so thick that it, it does feel like, like, you know, almost unnatural. I mean, it's, it's, it's like stage makeup of a kind, right? This could... Yes. It's not... Like full on Caligari German expressionist look, but it's 
it, but it's not far no, off. No, it, it feels like a modern kind of equivalent. Like they're putting on their murderous game face. Yeah. Our main character is English pianist Marcus Daly, who's played by David Hemmings. And after he is finishing a set at a jazz bar, he wanders the lonely streets of Rome. And and again, this is a case where everything feels almost unnaturally empty. You have this the blue bar in the background, which is straight out of Edward Hopper's painting Nighthawks. And and the landscape, it was shot, the film was shot both in Rome and Turin, and it has identifiable landscapes of both cities, giving this the film like an everywhere and nowhere vibe at the same time. It's not unlike David Fincher's Seven in that regard, uh, or even Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, where you're shooting in different cities, you're taking different elements, and you're making you know a place that doesn't feel quite real, but but at the same time authentic. Yeah, uh, Argento said in when he was you know r- getting into writing this movie that he was uh, and and you know doing it that Hopper was a big influence on him. Um, they built that specifically to be like the Nighthawks diner, but he he wanted that kind of hyper real look that starts to take you into, you know, like a stylized unnaturalness when you get that real, you know. There's there are ele- I mean, it really feels like a dream world. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I remember thinking when we watched Bird with the Crystal Plumage 10 weeks ago. That that felt like the Rome that people lived in. It wasn't the tourist Rome that we see in most movies, where it's like, oh yeah, here's here's uh, the Colosseum and here's the Forum and the Spanish Steps. It felt like, oh, this is the Rome that people lived in. This feels like a dream Rome that's not quite real, and 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 that change is. It's so stark and so dramatic and so fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, I, I'll go back to something I said with that, which is that Bird with the Crystal Plumage was, I think, you know, possibly the most beautiful horror movie. And I, I held back something uh, from you, Chris, which is that I'm going to reveal that that is one part of the three films that are the most beautiful horror films, all made by the same individual. Are the other two Deep Red and Suspiria? Yes. All made by the same person. It's it's that trio of is just it's incredible. And the progression from them is fascinating because it, it, Deep Red, and as we'll as we talk more about it, feels like the middle ground between Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Suspiria. It's there is a direct line. Like his other two Gialli that we talked about uh, back in episode six feel like the testing ground for the techniques he's going to really employ to greater effect in this film. But then you go from this film to Suspiria and it's, God, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, this film still mostly, mostly plays by the rules of the quote unquote real world. Right. Although you do open with psychic is real. Yeah. Well, there is that. (laughs) So it's not, quite our world right it does have different rules but it's just a tinge it's just a it's just a toe whereas then you know suspiria is going to go all the way yeah what's more unhinged about this movie than you know special rules or magic or anything is our experience of the world is what is unhinged um absolutely yeah and and i guess because the world is also unhinged but psychologically so and our experience of it is commensurate with that. 100%. Uh, Marcus meets his friend and fellow pianist Carlo, who is very, 
very drunk, like, dude, don't try to stand up kind of drunk. So drunk, he talks about being, uh, uh, well, later on, he talks about being the proletariat to. Yeah, <laughs> I love this of the line. Bourgeois. He's got that line. He's got yeah. that line. You play for art. I play for survival. It's not the same thing. That's such a great, great line. And they're two sides of the same coin. Because, like, there's even that shot where they're on opposite sides of this large statue it might be a fountain i can't remember it's like but like they're on each side of the frame and they both are kind of dressed opposite like one has dark shirt and light slacks the other has light shirt and dark slack it's like it's this perfect yin yang that that he frames there i mean it's fascinating oh yeah Uh, and if you watch if you watch the figures in the blue bar behind them they barely move like Every once in a while, like you'll see someone move slightly, but it's like time has stopped in the background. They are the painting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing. After his encounter with Carlo, Marcus sees a woman screaming from a nearby window. Again, like the gallery in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, you have a single rectangle of light surrounded by darkness, framing the crime. Marcus becomes the sole witness to the murder of Helga Ullman in her apartment. Marcus happens to live in the same building. He races up to try and help her, but it's too late to save her as the, the shards of the broken window have gone like straight into her neck. And he, he you know, he's trying to help. He, he doesn't hesitate to run up there. I'll give him that. Yeah. And I, I believe it's this sequence um, is where you will see some very wonderful camera work that you don't often get in uh jolly by the way i i i watched the arrow uh video presentation and i can say that uh they the extras are well worth it as well um some of the stuff is coming from the interview yeah i watched a few of them as well apparently they had they were able some big american production had just shot in town and had not yet figured out how to get their Chapman crane back to the United States. And it was in Turin. Oh, wow. And that's why that stuff looks so great because it was there. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And, oh, and, wow. And, and it's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful work here with, you know, going high, low when you're seeing him, you know, going uh racing upstairs and all of that you know coming from the the square in it is terrific he enters the apartment and he, he goes down this long hallway lined with what i have to describe as grotesque pictures like they're they're all portraits but they don't feel real they feel like something out of uh uh roger corman's poe films like uh, house uh, house of usher or you know or or uh the mask of the red death that kind of thing and, and it's in the same way that the sculptures in the art gallery in Bird with the Crystal Plumage felt like just unsettling. Yeah. And, it, you know, and he, he goes in, he, he tries to help uh, Helga, but he, he can't, you know, it's too late. And uh, in the wake of the murder, the police arrive, they begin their investigation. And Marcus asks if any of the paintings have been removed because he feels like something is missing, but he can't tell exactly what. And as we said, as you mentioned earlier, both this and Bird of the Crystal Plumage have men from overseas in Italy, foreigners in Italy, who inadvertently witness a crime and subsequently attempt to solve it. And in both cases, the main characters feel they there's something they've seen that they're not quite getting, that they're missing. And they're the they're the foreigner who is supposed yep. to be leaving, but can't right. leave the mystery behind. 
they feel responsible or they're obsessed and frankly probably a little of both is is how it's played this is also the scene where we get our introduction to marcus's soon to be partner in crime solving reporter gianna brezzi played by the absolutely luminous daria nicolodi and she's hilarious in this too she's great yeah I mean, there are times when she's not. I mean, but it's like there's 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 some definite comic relief here that's that's built in with her character, and it's oh, fantastic. she's a delight. Yeah, she's an absolute delight in this movie, and and it's interesting. Like we, we've talked about women a little bit over the course of this series, uh, and there have been other leading ladies in giallo films, uh, but unlike them, unlike uh, you know, uh, say an Edwige Fenech or or Anita Strindberg. She's not overtly sexy in the traditional sense. Like her her clothes and stuff are more masculine, but the way Daria plays the character has such life and joyousness that she is incredibly sexy and an absolute delight. Like she's just so great in this movie, my god. Yeah, I mean it, it is interesting. I I would put it that the movie it, she's one of the few women, you know, lead women in a in a gialli that isn't the, the movie doesn't overtly sexualize her. Right. It's not It's not about her or her persona. It's just like, what is the... And it's interesting because there are other characters in this movie when we get to, um, you know, some of the, the, the gay couple later on where one of those characters is... And I wouldn't say that they're overtly sexualized either, but they are given more of the um, the traditional, traditional sort of sexy, yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. And, and it's interesting, uh, and, and we'll we'll get to that side there. But it, it so it does. It's it's not a movie that's focus is playing with gender, but it does. It it absolutely does. Like the whole the whole relationship between Marcus and Gianna is one of sort of comic relief and sort of subverting gender norm. Yeah, she beats him in arm wrestling. The arm wrestling scene is fantastic. All right. Both elbows on the table directly straight, okay? Absolutely on I the table. I know the rules. And don't start till I say ready. Okay. All right. Wait, wait, wait. One, two, three, go! That was an absolute elbow off the table. That is a total and absolute cheat. A total cheat. Why, it's just... All right, all right. But bloody ridiculous. You're a... You are a big, strong male. I give up. So what do you say we go now? Daria Nicolodi began a decade-long relationship with director Dario Argento while making this movie. She would go on to co-star in several more of his films, including Inferno, Tenebrae, Phenomenon, Opera, and she co-wrote... Argento's 1977 masterpiece that we've referenced several times already, Suspiria. The one stupid thing that character does is she puts Marcus's name and picture on the front page of the paper, like, as a witness to the crime. What are you doing? Yeah, I, I, I'd say the 
I'd say the one dumb thing she does in the movie is uh, try to sleep with Mark. Yeah. Stay away. This guy's this guy's kryptonite, guy, man. Yeah. Do it. Uh, well, Marcus and, and, and Gianna start working together, and they start working with Professor Giordani, who who ran the, uh, the parapsychology seminar, in order to find Helga's killer. And Marcus, he tries to track down his friend Carlo. Uh, he encounters Carlo's eccentric mother at their apartment, uh, which I just thought was that seems fantastic. Oh yeah, uh, like she's kind of an odd duck who keeps mistaking Marcus for an engineer. <laughs> and he tries to tell her he's a pianist. She's like, "Oh, what a magnificent combination! A piano playing engineer." I'm like that is that is fantastic, and like so many conversations I've had with friends of my parents. Yeah. Just, don't understand uh, what I do. Yes, yes. Can't get their heads around what I do. And, and I believe, uh, and it's, it's a little, it's not a full running gag. Cause it does, it does phase out in the movie, but um, the cops couldn't believe that he was, a, a, you know, made money as a pianist either as a musician. The cops are the least, I mean, of all the uninvolved cops in Giallo, like this is the most. Like, oh yeah. Like uh, uh, until one key point, but like other than that, it's like, oh, is, are there even police investigating this crime, or or do you just have to leave it up to uh, to Marcus and Gianna? You just have to leave it up to Marcus and Gianna. <laughs> yes. Carlo's mother does give the address uh, where Carlo has gone to see a, his friend Massimo, and Marcus arrives at Carlo's friend's place to discover that Massimo is a trans woman. And Carlo's lover. And Carlo is drunk yet again and and according to Massimo, has been ill. And, and I got to say, there is a, a really interesting evolution of gay characters. There have been gay characters in all of Dario Argento's films that we've watched. And the evolution from the shopkeeper in Bird with the Crystal Plumage to Massimo here, who is just gives a sense of gentleness and and caring, uh, I, I the 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 deep concern that he has for his lover is um is is truly like it's it's one you feel and it's it's a great performance yeah and and it must have been unusual at the time in Italian cinema to have a trans trans woman yeah I mean it's interesting again um in that the interview on the disc um Argento. He very briefly touches on the subject, but does not stay on it for very long. And at least in at the interview time, he said um, it was not. He said the homosexuality is like I had it, and you know, as as something in many of my films. And he said back then it was not as big of a deal as it is now. And I'm guessing That's in Italy is what he's talking about. But um, well, yeah. yeah. Um, and I yeah. don't know if that was still kind of like you know in in the younger circles post sexual revolution or whatever um sure or is you know or is he just talking out of you know his his ass i don't know Ah. but he doesn't seem to think that it you know he's treating it as just something that went in the movies like he's not saying anything about it because at the time there was nothing to you know for for him to say at least it's fascinating it's just fascinating but what i also find telling is that while uh massimo very gentle and 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 uh you know has that has that side carlo is very self-loathing when oh, yeah. uh, when mark finds him yeah and 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 it's uh, carlo's clearly going through some stuff and and it's a very interesting dynamic here and uh it's just fascinating we have incredible sequence where marcus is playing piano at home alone and is attacked by the killer this scene is 
I mean, God, when he does suspense scenes in this movie, they are just off the chain. I mean, like the the way this evolves, like the way the scene builds, starting like he's playing piano, a little bit of plaster falling from the scene, from the ceiling onto the piano. We never see the killer. We never even see their hands or feet. The movement of the camera gives us the sense of their presence. And then we get that extreme close-up of the tape recorder that the killer uses to play the piece of children's music that we heard in the opening sequence. This killer has their own theme music, Rob. That's amazing. Yeah, and and they're, you know, as he's realizing um that someone is is out there, he is still trying to play the piano with his left hand so that the killer doesn't know that he knows while he's trying to reach for something to defend himself with. And it's it's so tense because that door's still open. And in order to reach, he's even kind of bringing himself closer to where the killer would be coming. Yeah. And then and then all of a sudden, the killer enters like sort of the apartment and we get this close-up of the wooden floor. Yeah. Like we don't see the killer's Hands or feet, it's just a, the, the floor, a scream close up on the floor, and then the shadow moving in, and then the phone rings, and Marcus goes up to grab it, and then at the time he's able to close the door and keep the killer out, uh, and it's Gianna on the other line, you know, he's like, the killer is here, uh, and you can hear the killer say through the door, I'll kill you sooner or later. Every suspense scene in this movie is is a friggin' tour de force. This one uh, no, is, 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 is one of them. It's amazing. This movie's amazing. Good God. And, and this is a critical point in the movie for another in the whodunit aspect. Because yeah. I will say, we saw, as you'd mentioned, the extreme close-up of the eye with the black eyeliner going on. Well, Gianna wears yeah. black eyeliner. She wears a lot of makeup. She's got almost kind yeah. of heavy, almost white makeup and the yes. very dark eyeliner. Yeah. And so at this point, it seems to absolve her. Although because of the way things are played, you go, is there a phone on the other side somehow? Is she calling from inside the house? Like it's not a hundred percent, not her. No, but it does seem to be tipping in the make. Cause you know, frankly, when you see the eyeliner and then like, you cut to her. She's the only other, you know, ma- you know, lead woman in this thing, and she's got that same makeup. It sure you, you instantly go, and she's very keen on uh, staying with uh, with him with his investigation and not wanting to leave his side. That is absolutely all of that is true. Yes, Marcus though uh, though the t- the killer does tip their hand because Marcus is able from the the music is able to identify the children's song. Which then leads Professor Giordani and his associates, got this other associate he's working with, to bring up this piece of modern folklore about a house haunted by a child singing. And that leads Marcus to this book, Modern Ghosts and Black Legends of Today by Amanda Rigetti. And I mean, let's be honest, this is thin as far as, you know, leads go. It's very, very thin, but it's all they have. And the house is known as the House of the Screaming Child, but the only location given in the book is the outskirts of Rome. So Marcus decides he's going to go see the author, but before he can get there, she is murdered in her home in the countryside. And I guess that thin lead is on the right track. And again, we have another amazing suspense sequence with Amanda Amanda Rigetti as she finds like this doll hanging in her house. And then the attack comes. It's, it's, there's a, there's a bit with a bird and the like the bird flies in there. It's almost it's almost uh, Poe-esque. And it's just 
I mean, I'll say it because I say it with every all the suspense sequences in this movie are incredible. Yes, I've seen Deep Red before, as have I. But rewatching this uh, this time, I was alone at night. I turned the lights <laughs> off. <laughs> To, you know, I like to, for most movies, if I can, sure. turn the lights down so I can watch it in my own little darkened theater living room. Uh, this was the scene, Chris, where I turned the lights back on. <laughs> no lie. <laughs> and I oh. said, I'll watch the rest of this. <laughs> That's <laughs> with amazing. The lights on. That is amazing, and and this is where we have the the second drowning of the of the evening, where um, you know, she is attacked and and she's drowned in a bathtub of scalding water. Uh, again, another a sort of callback to the drowning in blood and black lace. Apparently, the original in the initial concept for the film from Argento and co-writer Bernardino Zipponi was to have killings that people could connect to. Like the idea that most people have not been stabbed or shot, but most people have scalded themselves with boiling water at one point or another, even if it's just a little bit, you know, on on their hand or something. So the injuries that would happen in the course of the movie were things that people could connect to in a way that, that uh, you know, they can't necessarily connect to being shot because, thank God, I've never been shot. And with this sequence, once the tension is done because the killer has done their job and, and has left, even here, Argento does a little bit differently where, you know, she, Amanda Rigetti, is still in her whimpering death throes. And his framing, he's got her framed off kilter. Like, she is not fully in frame. It is an odd choice, right? As she's whimpering in her death throes, she's not fully in frame. And you've got uh, – and then – the hand extends because also this is like, this has enough steam in here to be a Freddy nightmare. Uh, <laughs> for, I, yeah. th- this, this town outside of Rome has the hottest water <laughs> in the entire country. Uh, but yeah, she reaches over towards this mirrored wall and, and we don't see it later. Uh, Professor Giordani shows up and he visits the house after, after the body's been taken away and he figures out, that she wrote something on the wall. He like steams up the bathroom. And what I love is he ends up finding out that all it says is it was. Yes. That's it. Oh, so close. Uh, With Amanda dead, Marcus is able to find the house from the picture in the book and the presence of a rare flower not commonly found in Italy. Another, not unlike the presence of the rare bird in the bird with the crystal plumage that helps them find out where the where the killing had taken place. And, and Marcus go, goes into this house. He goes to the house on the pretense of wanting to purchase the property. And the property manager, it's interesting, he's got a daughter who's played by uh, Nicoletta Elmi, the little girl from Who Saw Her Die. She was also in Bay of Blood. She was one of the two kids of of, of the main couple in Bay of Blood who, so she, there, there you go. She's in three of these. But here she is a creepy, creepy and sadistic little girl who, you know, puts pins through the heads uh, or necks, excuse me, of lizards. <sighs> well, the, we spent a lot of time with Marcus exploring this house. And, and here's the thing. In the hands of a lesser filmmaker... This would have brought the film to an absolute screeching halt. But here, it's fascinating. The house itself is a threat 
because it's like you feel like the ceilings could fall at any time, the the floors could open up and swallow a person, and and so his exploration of the house, which could be a shoe leather slog, in fact turns into a suspense sequence in and of itself, which is amazing. Yeah, it's a goblin infused terror music video. Yes, and you keep getting into sections of the house where you don't have windows. And then the, even the windows can be quite dirty. So you're you're not quite sure how fast the light level is going down outside, but you do know that it is, it, you do see that it is going down. The sun is, yes. you know, we're, we're in late afternoon at a certain point. I would not want to be in this house in daylight, let alone at night. I would get totally freaked. I would just get totally, totally freaked. Yeah, for sure. That's a no-no. <laughs> Inside, Marcus finds a mural behind like the plaster of a wall, uh, which shows a child holding a bloody knife over a dead body. And, and in what is, I, I think it was one of those things that's emblematic of the movie, Marcus leaves only for a bit more plaster to fall down, revealing more of the picture. Because Marcus, you know, again, Marcus has not seen all there is to see. Just like this movie, he has not seen all there is to see. And that's kind of in, in micro in this in this section in the house. Yeah, well, and that goes back to the uh, when they were having their drunk conversations. There's something that Carlos says that I, I think encapsulates a lot of this movie. No, Mark, you think you're telling the truth, but in fact, you're only telling your version of the truth. It happens to me all the time. That's a fantastic line. And that, I think... Is you know we you talked about a, a similar theme in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but here I think it goes even further. This isn't about necessarily what you saw. This is about whose world is real. Yeah, you know I think this again when you talk about the progression of the style and where this is you know where this is going to go you know in Suspiria Land that you're no longer dealing with just um, damaged people in the world. You start to deal with a whole different world where the, the, the psychological inside is what is outside. And it's, um, you know, beautiful. It's fascinating. That brings us to one of the most famous scenes in this film as the killer stalks Professor Giordani in his home. And I mean, this one, again, well, I'll say it every time, the suspense sequences here is, is amazing. Here we have one of the most surreal images that I think has become emblematic of the movie itself, where the professor is distracted by this moving mechanical doll that approaches him seemingly under its own power before the killer could strike from another direction. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And what, uh, Rambaldi made that doll the man who created E.T. a few years from here. Yes, and who we, we talked about a number of times on this uh, in this series with uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin and, and Don't Torture Duckling. Special effects wizard Carlo Rambaldi. The kill itself is actually one of the more brutal ones because the professor, he's initially hit by a poker. He's looking at this doll. Yeah. He, he stabs it with a knife. And then, you know, it collapses. He starts laughing. And then the, the poker comes from another direction. And then the, the killer rams his face, like his mouth, into like the mantle and then into the table. Yeah. Teeth first. Like teeth, teeth into first. It. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's, it's pretty brutal. Oh, God. And he didn't even know who the killer was. <laughs> he had no idea. Marcus then realizes that there's something he's missed at the house. And he looks at the pictures from the book. 
and he notices that there's a window on the outside of the house that is no longer there. And he says that line that I think is sort of the, the that's why did I not notice that before? Yeah. That's the movie. So then he does this thing where where he he climbs up the side of the building at night like an idiot. I'm like, what are you doing, Marcus? Like he nearly falls to his death just trying to climb up there. Loses the flashlight. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. loses the flashlight. Like, and then finally he does the smart thing is that figures out where the window should be and then breaks through the false wall from the other side. And then he, he's like, he's peering into this hidden room. It's like Howard Carter looking into the tomb of King Tut. And he finds this desiccated skeleton inside. Now, like I said, I've seen Deep Red before. But here's what I want to tell you that I noticed for the first time on this viewing. The Christmas tree from the opening sequence is in the corner of the hidden room, now covered in cobwebs. This was the location of the opening scene, and someone hid the entire room that this crime occurred. And it's like, I never noticed that before, but it's all there. Like, it's like they just walled off that crime, like you'd wall it off in your mind. Until you could no longer wall it off in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Marcus is knocked unconscious, and, and then when he comes to, he's outside the house, and it's on fire. Gianna is there, having found him inside, and dragged him to safety and saving his life. So again, we talk about the gender reversal you know, in, in the movie, we, the previous movie, we had to have a guy come rescue the woman at the end. Here, we have a woman rescue the guy. Although, in this moment, there is also a little bit of, well, he got knocked out and was going to be left inside the burning house. Although, it's quite convenient that she's now just there. You don't quite know. Y- you don't quite it's, know. It's a little, yeah, you know, and and. As far as a motive for her to keep him alive, it's because they were supposed to go away together. Oh, true. And go, you know, on their boning vacation. And uh, he just had to go look one last time at this stupid house uh, and left her a note (laughs) that he would be here. And then all of a sudden he gets knocked out and the house is on fire. So you tell me, Chris. (laughs) Could It could be. Yeah. They go to the property manager's house where Marcus notices the creepy daughter has a drawing that looks exactly like the mural on the wall in the now burned house. And when he asks, when he presses her on it, she says she saw it in the archives at school. And Marcus and Gianna, they go to the school, which is not far away, to break in, and they search the student, the archives for the student who drew this original picture, and Marcus soon finds his answer. I think we should put our spoiler line in here. If if you have not seen Deep Red, and you want to do so with for the first time without knowing the ending, and I, I highly recommend that, you can skip to our next chapter. You can hear all about what our next series is going to be and our upcoming bonus episode. This is such a great movie that if you haven't seen it before, I, I highly recommend uh, you know, you've already we've, we've we've already talked a lot about it. Leave yourself that final revelation. If you have seen it before, join us as we go into that final revelation. Okay, so they're in the school. Gianna goes to call the police and is stabbed. Marcus finds her and then searches for the attacker and soon finds Carlo. And he's got a gun pointed at Marcus, and he was the one who drew those pictures as a boy. 
And just as Carlo is about to shoot Marcus, the police show up and Carlo runs off. And in a scene very reminiscent of the ending of Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Carlo runs out into the street. He's hit and dragged by a passing truck. And he's run along the pavement. He hits his head on the curb before finally he is crushed by an oncoming car. Yeah, head crushed. Like the head some really crushed. good head crushing action here. Like, that some head's good gone. gore. Yeah. Yeah. I also unrelated to this movie directly, but this does feel like a trash truck pass off from the end of this series to a Christmas special. But- <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. Serendipity. Oh, serendipity indeed. At the hospital, Marcus learns that Gianna will be okay but will be unconscious for a while. And once again, he finds himself walking the lonely streets of the city and back in front of the apartment window where it all began. He has a revelation. Carlo couldn't have killed Helga. He had only just left Marcus at the time the murder happened. He could not have gotten up there in time. And there's this terrific moment where Marcus realizes that that it, that it couldn't have been Carlo. The camera does this like 180 degree turn around him as he stays completely still. And it was just like, Rob, you talk about camera movements more than I do because you have a more formal uh, cinema education than, than I have. But holy shit, this one was just like, it was one of those things where it's like you, you notice it and you feel it and it's great. Yeah, I mean, it is... To my, it's an equivalent of that Hitchcock uh, move that, uh, you know, Spielberg uses in Jaws, uh, et yep. cetera, where you, you know, you're changing the 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 lens length on the telephoto lens or the zoom lens as you're dollying in or out to get that effect of the character realizing something. This is as affecting, um, but I, you know, in, in a weird way, more naturalistic, even though in some ways you could say it's a bigger camera move. Yeah. But it really is, you know literally turning him around it ain't subtle but it works exactly you know oh it works great uh so marcus now realize he he races up to the apartment and he walks along that hallway lined with those grotesque paintings and he realizes what he missed a mirror What an idiot. That's what I saw, a mirror. There never was a painting there at all. What I saw was a reflection in a mirror. I saw the face of the murderer. The picture that he later thought was missing wasn't a picture at all. It was a mirror. And in the mirror, he saw the killer's face. And just as Marcus realizes who he saw, the killer appears behind him, and it's Carlo's mother. And it's just, the way this revelation plays out, it's so good. Uh, and, and we learn that, that, that years ago, her husband was going to have her recommitted to a mental hospital, so she murdered him in front of their son, Carlo. Carlo drank heavily in an attempt to repress the memory. And man, the kid they got to play young Carlo, holy shit, he really looks like the adult actor who played Carlo. Yeah. Uh, That was a great casting job. For sure. Great casting job. I also want to mention that they did not cheat this. If you go back to the beginning of the movie, as 
Marcus is walking down that hallway, you actually see her face in that mirror. Absolutely. And they don't even go by that fast. No. But it is frame left in stuff that's going by. And the focus of your eyes has most likely been drawn to the lead character on the right. Right. Unless you're a jerk like me. Who is purposefully <laughs> looking all around trying to figure out the magic trick? Although, I mean, I knew anyway because I've, you know, I've seen it before. But yeah, yeah. But they they absolutely do not cheat. It is absolutely there. Carlos' mom attacks Marcus and wounds him. They they struggle. Her necklace gets caught in like the building's old school kind of like wrought iron elevator, and then Marcus reaches up and he hits the down button. And she's got this necklace and she is full on decapitated by the elevator, just leaving behind a pool of deep red blood that we could see Marcus's reflection in. It's, I mean, this is a movie that leaves you literally breathless at the end. It, it really, it, it really does. Yeah. I mean, it is even her death at the end which in some ways is just it's a cool thing and they wanted to do the effect and sure all of that sure but it really does contribute to the unreality or hyper reality as uh mr argento says where this you know it it does feel like a version of the truth (laughs) you know um because obviously while i believe that the elevator is strong enough to you know wrench something um, clearly her necklace would have snapped before decapitating her, <laughs> like going, True. Th- going through all of the flesh and the bone. But th- by this point in this movie, if you're looking for things to be real, uh, I just think you have no heart. Uh- <laughs> but that's the thing is, is by this point in the movie, you're so deep in, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or two hours of unreality or, or a heightened reality that, you don't question that for a minute. Maybe you no. do later on the drive home, but in the moment, you're just like, oh my God. Like it 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 completely works in the moment. And uh this film is just it's it's extraordinary. It is just and what a what a bookend to this golden age of Giallo that we've been we've been exploring. It's such a transitional movie. You know, uh, uh, again, aside from sort of bookending with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, as we mentioned, it's a pivotal film for Argento. From here, he would move into more overtly supernatural horror with with his next film, Suspiria. And that film would have a massive influence on horror, both in Europe and the United States. But you don't get to Suspiria without Argento first doing Deep Red. Um, And it's also it begins some key collaborations for Argento that would define his is the greatest era of his career, uh, you know, beginning with you know, Daria Nicolodi, with uh, composer Claudio Simonetti, a goblin. And uh, it's just, it, it is the very definition of a transitional movie in, in amazing ways and fascinating ways. Yeah. And I'm going to go come back around to something that I briefly touched on, um, but I did my research from the beginning of this thing, which was, this, this truly is, it's a beautiful film and it really is kind of an, an artwork of death that I think is is transcendent. Yeah. And it was uh, out of uh, this, what I was talking about at the beginning. Uh, it, it, it springs from the, the Shaiva Tantric tradition, right? Right. Yes. Where you're looking at everything, it, you know, and this, when you say these words, it isn't quite 
what the expression sounds like, that, that there is nothing that is not God, right? right? There's nothing that isn't the source. You know, oftentimes Westerners will hear that and they think, oh, so murder is God? Well, ah, that's crazy talk. This is not saying that. This is not saying that murder is good and something to be fun and ogled at. What it is, though, is that you it is about the spirit transcending kind of the base level view of the world and that you can find there is a beauty in all things because there is, you know, God or if you prefer, you know, the source or whatever. Right. There is something in everything, even in the most flawed parts of our world, and that they actually go through this uh these different artworks can go through this in different realms. There's, you know, besides death, there's fear, there's love there, you know, there, there are many different things, some of which we would traditionally think of as being something that you could, you know, kind of exalt, be exalted in, um, in that way. Uh, but this totally reaches that level in, in a way that, you know, I think the horror genre in general will touch on this, but I think his movies in particular, uh, just aesthetically, really, really hammer that home. I, I, absolutely, and th- and this is this is begins the, his most successful period from the late seventies to the eighties. This Suspiria, uh, you know, Inferno, Tenebrae, um, you know, all the way through Opera. You know, what's amazing to me is that that Hollywood never got him, like that he never like like. Why did they not cherry pick this guy to start, you know, doing like, you know, Psycho 2 or something like that? Um, I don't know. Um, Because they, they do frequently, they will they will get directors from outside the U.S. if they think they're going to make hits. Sure. I can only imagine that, um, you know, it was still considered a bad genre to be in. Yeah. Um, you know, Carpenter literally had to make the most profitable movie in the history of movies in order for him <laughs> to get plucked out of the genre. <laughs> True. Yeah. And, and we all, you know, and we, we think of that, you know, now everybody acknowledges Halloween as, you know, this, this, uh, a, an absolute classic, but it, you, you have, if you cast, but if you go back to that time, how, you know, disreputable horror was. It was. It, it's like the jazz music that that uh, that that Marcus was trying to get his guys to play at the beginning. You needed a little bit more trashy. Yeah, I mean, and sure, you'd had Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, pro, you know, and, and Psycho to some degree. But the thing is, all of those movies are well, Psycho to a less degree because Hitchcock was pissed off. But uh, <laughs> but the other two definitely are in in the uh, to use the phrasing from today were elevated horror right horror that realizes that horror is a terrible genre and so it's going to be better than horror right um not that i think friedkin was doing that but yeah i hate the term elevated horror i hate it i hate the term elevated horror it really bothers me but it was okay to like those and they were also they were based on books as well right oh yeah halloween was a full bore slasher movie you know absolutely Uh, it was you there was nothing that you could say was elevated about that Uh, now i do find it it, it, in at the time obviously i think it's very elevated but at the time it does make me wonder um you did kind of have these european art movies but that around surrounding that genre there's a lot of sleaze as well (laughs) that's true during these high points and so it makes you wonder if you ask why did Hollywood never grab Dario Argento, and the answer might be Sergio Martino. It might be. 
Aldorado. <laughs> it might be Umberto Lenz. Like, you know. It's, that's fascinating. It's just fascinating. Rob, I, as we as we as we reach the the final moments of our our, our get me another bird with the crystal plumage series, which has been an extraordinary journey, I'm going to ask the question I ask at the end of all of our series, Rob. What have we learned? Um, I've learned the true meaning of show don't tell. Now, this is the <laughs> most basic screenwriting uh, advice or writing advice too, right? Because when going through these, and I hinted at it earlier, if you as a writer think that you've imparted critical information or anything at all to the audience because it got said once in a line of dialogue, let me assure you, (laughs) everyone has no idea what's going on. And I think that's a big part of the not being able to follow some of the more murder mystery-esque junk. Yeah where they are doing a lot of shoe leather. I, I think that's absolutely true. Because there's there's so much that's throwaway lines of dialogue that you either catch or you don't. Like, in Citizen Kane, if they want you to realize Rosebud's a big deal, he's not just saying Rosebud while he's dying, but you're seeing it, it's in a snow globe. It's close like, it's up like, on the lips. lips. It's, you know. it's, it's like a they are making, they are showing there's a big moment. I mean, obviously most, or a lot of movie scenes will have dialogue. That's not, I don't mean you never say something, but if it's literally two characters walking and in the midst of a three, you know, or a two minute talkie <laughs> scene, there was one line of dialogue that you're supposed to pick out. It's like, that ain't going to work. So I yeah. think the Giallo genre it is the best example. It should be taught in film school. <laughs> Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I I just find it so fascinating. I mean, again, the, the way the Italians kind of, uh, you know, and we've touched on this in other series where the Italians are the ones who they they jump onto a trend like nobody you've ever seen, and they they don't make just two or three; they make two or three dozen, and and they do it. I mean, that that. Almost all the movies we talked about for, were from 1971 and 1972 with a few, you know, obviously we had a few before, uh, we had a few after, and that's the golden age of this genre. And, and while it does get continue, you know, there are giallos made later. Argento would make giallos in the 80s, and maybe we'll talk about those in a bonus episode down the road. Um, but it, it's it, it's an explosion of a, of a particular genre with seemingly – very strict conventions very, very quickly. And then it kind of blows out almost, almost, almost as fast as it came in. Uh, and it just fascinates me. And and yet the effect that, that, that explosion of that genre would have on films outside of it. Like you, it's like, it's like an atom bomb where it's leaving its own radiation I don't know why I put that analogy. It's so weird. Uh, but like it's leaving sort of the radioactive materials of itself on, you know, slasher films, other supernatural horror films, other kinds of thrillers. Oh, yeah. The sex that, the, thrillers, the sexy thrillers. Sex thrillers are, of the yeah. 80s and 90s. The serial killer movies that came in the wake of Silence of the Lambs have a giallo. Oh, for uh, sure. There's, there's the influence of it there. Except it's, virtuosity, it's just, not virtuosity. <laughs> Not I've never one. seen. I've never seen Virtuosity, Rob. Oh my god! I, I'll say it's it's fun <laughs> as hell. It's fun as hell, but it's not a giallo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, it's 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 a fascinating and and again, as we reach the end of every series we do, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to put it away for a little while, but I will definitely go back to it because there's so many more. Like, there's just there's dozens and dozens that of you know with these crazy evocative titles that we couldn't cover because we could only cover so much in uh, you know in the in the space of time that we had. And for the number, I do want to stress for for people like. It's amazing that the quality level was there, given how fast they were pumping these out. It reminds me in that way of of like the classic Hollywood studio system, where they were making yeah. so many films so fast, but all of the technical aspects were, you know, still just like rock solid. Like they are yeah. craftsmen working and they are churning out at a fast rate. But I mean, these things are, they're not like rinky dink movies in that way. Um, no. It, which, no, no, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. This is not like direct to video equivalent stuff. They are making no making the real deal. The, these are real movies, Jack. Th- I mean, no, no. they are cinema, Chris. They are exactly. Making, they are not making movies. They are making cinema. And I and I and I look. I know I'm being like a little fun here, but I actually mean that. They, they are not. I know, and I agree. Knockoff movies. No, no, I agree a hundred percent. Well, we are already. I, I want to tell as we as we reach the end of our Get Me Another Bird with the Crystal Plumage series, we are already at work on our next Get Me Another series, which will kick off in early 2024, early next year. And we are incredibly excited to announce that will be Get Me Another A Hard Day's Night. Uh, It's an incredibly important and influential film that will be celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2024. Uh, And we have a fascinating lineup of music-centric films and TV series that came in the wake of the Beatles' first feature film. I think it's going to be great. Uh, Rob, I know you're very excited. Oh, I'm super excited. And I can tell everyone right now, we have not used AI to help (laughs) craft this podcast, uh, even though the Beatles themselves have used AI for now and then. (laughs) Uh, That is true. We are are a... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are a completely uh, organically crafted podcast in that regard. And 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 we will probably have a couple of bonus episodes before that series starts, including our Silent Night, Deadly Night Christmas special coming two weeks from today on December 19th. Uh, and, and for that episode, we will be unwrapping both Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Colon Garbage subti- Day. Our own <laughs> subtitle, Garbage Day. <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, and Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 3, better watch out. And it is going to be a very deadly, I mean, Merry Christmas. And as always, we hope you've enjoyed. watching. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I still prefer the warm side of the door. That's the the Silent Night, Deadly Night song that really really gets to me. Oh. As always, we hope you've enjoyed taking this journey with us. Uh, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Get Me Another Pod. As always, tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. Tell that very dramatic psychic about the show, although she probably already knows. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when studios say, get me another.